0: Okay everybody, welcome to the second episode of Celluloid Fever Dreams, your weekly walk through the weird, wild, wonderful, wacky world of strange cinema from the 50s through today. As always, I'm your host, I'm easy, I'm breezy, I'm butamus. I'm Wyndham Jennings. Uh, Glad to see you back for our second episode, if you haven't already and for some reason hadn't started with the first episode, go back and check it out. Uh, As usual, we're picking a weird movie from the past that i feel like well i don't really know if this one needs to be brought to people's attention uh i know in the last episode kind of explained why i started making movies from the 50s through today but i really think you need to understand the process of why i choose the movies i do mainly boils down to i wanted to see them i mean that's it it's you know i either saw a trailer or the other cases, it's, you know, popped up and I thought the plot summary sounded interesting. Uh, in this week's case, is a movie I've seen before and I wanted to go back and revisit. Uh, and a lot of them are going to be like, it's, it's movies I saw when I was younger because, you know, I'm of the age that I was there when the video stores really started breaking out. And, and uh, you know, people were going every week, going every night in some cases to get movies and, and studios were just throwing anything on the shelf. So I've, I've seen a ton of these, like, offbeat, weird uh, out there, movies, low budget things, just you know, stuff done to fill shelves or to to uh, you know fill a spot in the theater. And uh, I want to revisit some of them, see if my memory might be a little skewed because of the age where I've seen a lot of them, or see if they really do deserve a re re uh, watch. Really deserve other people to know about them. Uh, you know, like last week. Last week was one I just discovered thanks to Amazon Prime's recommended, and and it turned out to be one that. Yeah, it was very enjoyable, One I, I do think more people need to know about. And, and if you're watching this, please go back and check it out. Uh, but this, mo- this week's movie is... Um, this week's movie is God Monster of Indian Flats, and it is honestly the worst movie I have ever watched in my entire life. Uh, as, as I sit here and record this, I've watched this film three times. Uh, once when it originally hit DVD, uh, back in 2001. Uh, out of uh, something weird video uh recently again i found it on uh Tubi, i believe and uh i watched it again for the podcast because i was like you know i was the first time i watched it, i was going through a tough time in my life uh you know i'd, I'd hit some some rough times and, and just wasn't in, in a good frame of mind and i thought all right maybe maybe that had something to do with me hating the movie but after watching it again and uh, then watching it a third time because Rift Tracks has uh, done a version of it i stand by my original judgment this is one of the no this is the worst movie i've ever watched in my life uh and objectively i know you're, some some of you may be sitting there thinking you know i've watched it, it is not that bad i've watched it as a guilty pleasure of mine uh and and honestly if you like this movie this is just my opinion i mean i'm not going to sit here and kink shame you uh, you know, if you you found something to like in it, more power to you. Uh, I'm not the audience for this film. That's the way I'll put it. Uh, you know, I, I didn't enjoy it. There were a couple of things in it that I did like, but it is still, still just a horribly made movie to me. And and I've watched Robo Vampire. I've watched films by Neil Breen. I've seen Birdemic. Okay, I've sat through Rubber i actually kind of enjoyed the last one but uh that last one you know it's uh yeah anyway and and this movie is just horrible and and what made this even worse uh, i take notes like i'm sitting here uh i've got two two pages of bullet points for this film things to keep on keep me on track things i want to talk about about it uh you know facts because that's what I want to do with this do with this podcast. You know, I want to make sure I got my facts straight. You know, I tell you guys something. I want you to know I've researched it. I want you to know it's right. And if I am wrong, you know, please tell me. You know, go on Twitter at Sea Fever Dreams. Uh, you know, Facebook, Instagram. Uh, so so yeah, celluloid Fever Dreams. You know, tell me. Tell me if I got something right. Tell me some. Uh, you know, you think I overlooked something. And this is the hardest movie to find anything on. I'm not even sure. It was ever released nationally. Uh, It it was originally uh, December 1973, I think, is when uh, Principal Photography finished on it. I'm not entirely sure. I know 1973, but I'm not sure of the month. I I saw different things as I I researched. I'll give you an idea. In trying to find stuff on this film, I found myself reading Rolling Stone articles from 1971 on Frederick Hobbs, who was the creator of this film. This was his fourth and final film. Uh, talking about his first two films, Troika from 1969 and uh, Roseland from 1971. But uh, nothing, nothing about this film until it hits DVD in 2001. And I've, uh, according to my research, uh, bad movie fans Mike Vrainy and Lisa Petrucci are the ones who first brought it to, uh, to uh, the company's attention and got it released nationally on DVD. So you have them to thank, or uh, in my case, blame, for for the uh, travesty of this film being released upon the world. But like I said, I I can't even find proof that it was ever released nationally. It may have been shown locally. It may have been shown in in uh, art house or you know film festivals, things like that. Uh, given who Frederick Cobb's was, and and I'll talk about him a little later. More about him. Uh, I kind of, I could see it doing that, being like a local thing, being, or, or like, you know, small film festivals, uh, but nothing. I'm, I, I I know this is the second film I've done from the 70s, uh, and I could probably do a whole podcast on weird films from the 70s, if if we're going to be honest, there's a ton of them, but I I didn't want to do that, I didn't want to get stuck into one, so one of my rules, my self-imposed rules is I won't do more than, uh, two films in a row from a decade so you know from here on out until i've done a couple of films from most of the other decades from the 50s 60s 80s etc we won't be coming back to the 70s for a while is what i'm telling you so uh the plot of this film is god the plot of this film is all over the place uh you know i've mentioned robo vampire if you only think about that film which is horrible as well it's actually two movies edited together to try to get one story out of Unfortunately, God Monster of Indian Flats doesn't have that as an excuse. From uh, what I've been able to understand, reading about Fred- Frederick Hobbes and, and people who met him and knew him, he was very much someone who did not believe in uh, rewrites. He did not believe in editing his, or, you know, going back and editing what he had written. In other words, as soon as he put it on paper, it's done. As soon as he shot it, it's done. And the film really has that feel. It, there's some very disjointed parts of the plot. Uh, there's things that just don't seem interconnected. There are things that... I'll, I'll go through and I'll just talk about the plot, and you guys will see what I mean. The, the basics of the story... Oh, another reason I don't think... I'll go back to this real quick. Another reason I don't think that there was uh, it was ever released in a uh, national capacity is I couldn't even find a tagline for it. You know, I found it was an alternate title. I found that it's also known as The Secret of Silverdale because it was shot near Virginia City, Nevada under the Silverdale mines there. But uh, I, I hadn't seen a... Uh, to my knowledge, I hadn't seen a, a tagline for it. So that's another reason why I don't think that maybe it was released nationally back in the 70s. But uh, the basic plot of the film is a mutant sheep terrorizes the town. And if that was always working with, well, I mean that's worked for a lot of films. I mean, Night of the Lepus is just giant rabbits terrorizing a desert town. Kingdom of the Spiders is just poisonous spiders terrorizing a desert town. Uh, I'm kind of seeing a pattern here. Maybe we shouldn't. Maybe desert's not a good place for people to live. But the monster doesn't really play a big part in the story. If you watch the film, the majority of it is about a guy trying to buy mining rights from the townspeople to try to reopen the mine that that's literally it i mean that's that's like 75 80 percent of the film is dealing with this plot line you know i'll just i'll just start at the beginning see the uh the main character well i can't call him the main character i think he's we were introduced to him but he's in maybe 15 minutes of the film altogether but uh it's just eddie and he's a yokel and if you're listening to me talk and wondering what kind of person I call a yokel, yeah, yeah, that gives you an idea of what kind of person Eddie is. But he he leaves the family sheep farm and heads to the big city of Reno, Nevada, where he hits it big in in uh, the, one of the casinos there. Winning, uh, I believe it was two hundred, yeah, two hundred dollars on a slot machine. And this is 1973, so you know, and, and uh, I'm recording this in December 2020, so that's roughly like eight hundred thousand dollars today or something i don't, I don't know I, I didn't do the math uh but it's a lot of money it's uh well hang on a minute uh if i remember right i think minimum wage back then was around a dollar two dollars so you know eddie's won three four weeks worth of pay for tax uh tax free but uh you know of course hitting it big he attracts the attention of some people at the casino and He starts hanging out with them, one of them, and I love this. I don't think they actually call him this in the film. I don't think they call him by name. But in the credits, the guy who Eddie meets is uh, Elbow Johnson. And they don't bother to put that in quotation marks, like a nickname. No, his name is just Elbow Johnson. Elbow, ladies and gentlemen. Elbow Johnson. I don't know what kind of parents would name their child Elbow, but, you know, whatever. Uh, but Elbow convinces Eddie to go with him to Virginia City, Nevada. Because, you know, nothing bad's ever happened to anybody who's hit it big in a casino and, and climbed into a car with somebody they just met and drove hours and hours out into the desert. No, no, nothing, nothing bad's ever happened to people like that. But Eddie shows up in Virginia City and it is... it, it It's like a town stuck in time. It's like... Uh, some of you get this. It's like Tweetsie Railroad, or it's like a theme park. Everybody is dressed like it's not 1970, but 1870. They're in old-timey uh, cowboy clothes, and the girls in the bar that uh, Eddie and, and Elbo goes to is dressed in the old uh, can-can saloon girl outfits with the big dresses and the big feathered headdresses. Uh, and and uh, when they walk into the bar. Uh, yeah, let me tell you something. First off, Eddie's a lot braver than I am, okay? He goes into the bar, and the house band is, uh, three guys playing banjo and one guy playing piano, okay? And I, ladies and gentlemen, I'm, I'm a middle-aged white guy from the South, and if I walked into a bar where the band consisted of three guys playing banjo, I'm I'm just open right out the back, right out the door, and, and never sitting foot in there again. So the fact that Eddie goes in, brave man. But, uh, they go in, and, you know, obviously everybody in the town's corrupt one of the saloon girls uh, pickpockets eddie's money and he accuses her of stealing and of course the town turns against him and uh the the at first i thought it was the sheriff because he's wearing a badge but you find out that he's uh, one of the deputies and uh, i didn't even write the character's name down i'm not even sure they call him by name but uh you know of course he takes townspeople's side because eddie's a filthy outsider and, uh, you know, all these women working in the saloon are just virtuous and pure, and and I I guess, I don't know. But uh, they, you know, rough Eddie up and toss him out, and he's found in the gutter by Dr. Clemens, who, uh, I don't know, he, they act like he works for a college, but there's no college in the town. There's nothing, he's got like a research lab, and it honestly looks like one of the buildings that they used when they were testing the atomic bomb. And it's it's just like a ruin, just like an underground bunker that's falling apart and there's like blasted out walls all around it. I mean, it looks like something out of Mad Max. But, uh, and, and I just want to go, go on the record. Dr. Clemens is played by E. Kerrigan Prescott, who did not have a big career. He appeared in uh, Roseland. Uh, he appeared in a, a some other B-movie, low-grade movie low grade sci-fi films from the uh, 60s uh i think his last role if i remember right was in an episode of uh hawaii 5-0 uh he is and he plays dr clemens uh the closest i can think is to imagine kelsey Grammer on a borderline lethal dose of meth after a three-day bender because he has such a manic energy to him and to his performance but at the same time he has one of these deep rich uh you know just vibrant voices uh uh, it's the kind of voice you expect to hear somebody on Broadway doing Shakespeare and he's in this film and it's just such a uh I don't know such a dissonance because of the way he plays the doctor and and just you know this commanding voice and and uh, everything and is one of the very few things I actually enjoyed about the film was Dr. Clemens and his performance but, uh, he finds Eddie and he takes Eddie in and I'm not sure if I've watched the movie three times. I'm still not sure. I think he takes Eddie because Eddie stays in Virginia city and he's not from Virginia city, but he takes Eddie back to, uh, cause Dr. Clemens is doing research on animals. He takes Eddie back to, uh, his place, but instead of letting him stay in his house, he just d- dumps him in the sheep pen because Eddie's a sheep herder, I guess, that's the reasoning. Uh, I mean, if, if we're being honest, it's probably because they didn't have the budget to include the doctor's house. But it's just a very strange moment to just kick somebody out of your jeep. Like, you can sleep in the sheep pen tonight, you drunk. And it's, uh, you know, especially after you've saved him from the townspeople and trying to convince him about everybody in, in the town's a jerk you know, to, to just turn into a big jackass and be like, there's a sheep pen, you know what to do, and just leave him there. But uh, during the night, Eddie has some kind of vision, and I don't know if he was dosed by the people. I don't know if uh, there's supposed to be a gas leaking from the mines, a toxic gas. I don't know if that caused him to hallucinate. I don't know if this is the work of God uh, uh, doing something, punishing the town or whatever, but it's a very psychedelic vision of sheep just uh, wandering around in smoke and more sheep wandering around, and and like weird rainbow colors on everything, like desaturated, I guess is the proper word for it. Uh, And then he he passes out. And the next morning, Dr. Clemens comes back with his assistant, Mariposa. Get used to hearing that name a lot. I mean, like Nicolas Cage in uh, Wicker Man, looking for his daughter, levels of Mariposa. I wonder, okay, let me let me try. Let me see if I can do. Let me see if I can sound like Doctor Clement Just Mariposa. Probably not close enough. But expect to hear her name a lot from him, uh, especially especially later on in the film when when they go into the mines to try to find samples and and uh, the gas overcomes her and he's trying to look for her and he's just yelling over and over Mariposa, Mariposa, Mariposa. Yeah. Uh, But they find Eddie passed out, and and he just suddenly just, like, sits up bolt upright, just screaming. And there's, like, this red, gooey, like, beanbag thing beside him. And the doctor immediately knows it's a mutated sheep embryo, somehow. And they take it back to the lab, and, and it's one of the most unintentionally funny scenes ever, as they pull up in the doc's jeep, and the box holding the... The embryo flops off the side, and he's like, "Pick it up, Eddie! Pick it up!" And just, just, and I'm pretty sure it was a mistake, and they just kept it in because they couldn't afford to do a second take. But yeah, that, that's the level we're, we're working with. And he sends Mariposa and Eddie to the local sheriff because he needs more electrical equipment. And the reason the sheriff has electrical equipment uh, is because he's building a countywide. He's building a, a countywide. Uh, surveillance system so he can just keep 24 hour seven day a week surveillance on everyone who lives in virginia city nevada for some reason and that's all it is they don't really bring anything more up of it other than he's doing this like nobody's opposing it the uh, mayor who's charles silverdale uh is behind it and it's just like everybody's okay with it they don't care but apparently he has all these all this wire and stuff and he lets the the uh, doctor have it, let's Mariposa have it for the doctor and, and whatnot. And I, I don't know who play. I don't even, even bother with who plays the sheriff You know, 90% of the people in this film this is either the only movie they did or the other films by Frederick Hobbs are the only movies they did so I, I don't really see a need to go a lot into the cast, I'll, I'll talk about a few of the people uh, like I did with, with E. Kerrigan playing Dr. Clemens but you know, it, it. I don't know why. I don't know if it was a, a direction from uh, Frederick or, or if it was just something the actor did, but no matter what he's wearing, the sheriff always has his badge on. Now, it, in this scene, it makes sense because he's in uniform, even though he's working on the surveillance system, but like, there's certain points where he's just wearing a regular shirt, uh, he's wearing like a tank top, and he's just always got the badge very prominently displayed. And I don't know if that's supposed to mean something or, or what, but it's something I noticed throughout the film and then we just leave them aside because the main story becomes a guy named Barnstable and that's right Barnstable and it is spelt Barn-stable but they pronounce it Barnstable uh, showing up to town working for Mr. White and they want to buy all the land and reopen the mines because 100 years ago Virginia City was one of the richest cities in America because of all the silver mines and the mines dr- uh, dried up and uh, they want, you know, this company wants to reopen it. And that's where Charles Silverdale comes in, played by Stuart Lancaster. And Stuart's one of those people that when you see them, you know you've seen them at other things, even if you don't know the name. Uh, his first, some yeah, one of his biggest roles, the three films that you probably would know him from, he played in uh, Faster Pussycat, Kill Kill, back in the 60s, and uh, two of his final roles he played the doctor to deliver the penguin in Batman Returns, and he played a small role in Edward Scissorhands. Apparently I didn't write that one down. Just Edward Scissorhands. And uh, he he very much is crazy. Uh, he's one of these characters that everything he's doing in the town, he wants to restore it to the way it was 100 years ago, when it was prosperous and, and everything. So he's very against Barnstable. He works with the deputy. To try to set Barnstable up so that people won't buy, won't sorry, won't sell their land to him, so that Mr. White uh, won't be able to take over the town and make money off of it, and uh, it gets really uncomfortable. Barnstable is played by Christopher Brooks. I mean, yeah, played by Christopher Brooks, Uh, and he appeared in uh, Roseland by Frederick Hobbs, Alabama Flats by Frederick Hobbs. Uh, he played Jesus Christ in the uh, black exploitation film, The Mac. And again, like E. Kerrigan Prescott, he has a, a very commanding voice. Uh, but he, he didn't really do a whole lot to act. That's, that's, he, these are his biggest roles, pretty much. And uh, he's... It gets uncomfortable to watch because he's the only, from what I can tell, uh, the, the only... Uh, I'll be politically correct. He's the only African-American person in town. And the things they do to discourage him and to make him look bad in the town's eyes, in today's political climate, is very uncomfortable to watch at times. Uh, They decide to set him up so that people won't trust him, and they're having their Virginia City Days, which is, you know, parades and, and celebrating the way the town was in the Old West. And they've set up a shooting gallery And I don't mean like air guns or like the, uh, like seeing some, some places like the little uh, light guns or whatever. No, they've just put a, a a set of shelves out in the street and put bottles on it. And people with live ammo are just walking up and shooting the bottles. And again, this is the 70s. So things like, you know, safety rules and, uh, you know, laws against things like this and, and, uh, you know lawsuits in case you accidentally shot somebody i guess you know just didn't exist because that's what it is it's just in the, you know on the sidewalk people walking by it one guy's like leaning on it to see the see if you made the shot or what and and live ammo from real guns because it's the 70s i mean i don't other than reasons i don't know why else you would do this but their plan is that the sheriff has taught his dog how to play dead so as Barnstable steps up and starts blowing bottles away and taking a big swig of whiskey from straight from a bottle, as he does so, the sheriff gets his dog to play dead and covers its eyes so people can't see that it's still looking around and immediately accuses Barnstable of shooting his dog dead. No bullet hole, no blood, nothing. Just, you know, dog rolls over on its backs, laying there. And of course, everybody is, oh, Barnstable shot a dog. We can't trust him. What kind of man would shoot a dog in the, the street? you know at a shooting gallery where we're using live ammo and there's not even a rope to prevent you from walking in front of the thing but that's it and and it it comes up this immediately leads into one of the i'm guessing unintentionally funniest moments in the film uh where they have a funeral for the dog in the church complete with a coffin and everybody's still in all their Old West gear, so you still have the chicks from the bar in their saloon girl outfits with the big feathered headdresses sitting in a church while the sheriff's deputy has a fake funeral for a dog to prevent the African-American guy who works for Mr. White from buying up land around the town because the mayor wants to make the town great again. Following me yet? But then we go from there back to, uh, for a brief moment, back to the lab. The sheep embryo has become this weird little creature. It's getting bigger. And uh, Marip- Mariposa and Dr. Clemens have gone down to the mine to figure out. And they uncover the gas, and the doctor thinks that it's responsible for the mutation. But they also uncover another mutated sheep skeleton, or a skull at least. I don't think they uncover the whole skeleton because Mariposa is undercutting. Uh, overcome by the gas, and uh, it's mutated in the same way. And he talks about this is the first mention of God Monster of Indian Flats because apparently one of these mutant sheep terrorized the town a hundred years ago. And then we're back to Barnstable and that whole storyline. And there's a little thing you know, Eddie and Mariposa start falling in love. Uh, you find out the local fortune teller is corrupt and is like spying on people and that's how she predicts the future and that storyline goes nowhere it's one scene but you know Mariposa and Eddie are falling in love cuz uh i don't I, I she's i don't she's the only woman in town that's not corrupt I, I guess i don't know we needed needed that i mean they go on one date to a cemetery to visit her mother's grave uh yeah But, you know, poor Barnstable, he gets arrested for shooting the dog and it is the saddest set. I mean, how do you have a town that's, the whole thing is Old West and you don't even have an actual jail cell to put Barnstable in? He is very much just in an office and they've replaced the window in the door with chicken wire. That's the police station. That's the jail cell. And all of a sudden, all the deputies just show up and decide, oh, uh, you know, we're we're going to uh, show you for coming to town and offering to, you know, buy stuff, you know, buy buy the land and and help our depressed economy and help our people have money to spend by uh, taking you out uh, into the middle of the desert and and uh, lynching you. Huh? <sighs> yeah. Very uncomfortable movie. Yeah, deputies and okay, uh, but he he manages to get away and he he manages to go to you know they chase him across the desert and he winds up at the uh, professor uh, professor the doctor's lab and of course there's a shootout and he's hiding and the guns are causing you know the creature to go crazy and by this point it's like seven eight feet tall and uh, his equipment starts shorting out and he runs out and. <laughs> Again, very uncomfortable scene, but he's he runs out and sees all the deputies and is like, what's, what's going on? You're upsetting my, my experiment. You're upsetting my creature. Oh, we're after Barnstable. And he just immediately turns around and there he is. And just yells it like, you know, there he is. Really? Really? But the creature escapes. And I want to point out It escapes and kills one of the deputies. And at this point, we are 67 minutes into an 89-minute film. And this is the first time the title monster has done anything. Anything. 67 minutes in. And it is the most pitiful monster ever. Uh, the costume uh, Frederick Cobb's was a classically trained artist, uh, and and he called himself a one man apocalypse in the art world. And and uh, he I've actually looked his artwork up. He was heavily influenced by things like Goya and uh, primitive indigenous artwork, things like folk idols, religious processions, uh, and there's an appeal to his artwork. There, there really is. There's a, a primitive power to it. And, and one of the things he did, he called it parade sculpture, where he would modify cars and drive them across the country because he, he didn't want art in museums. Uh, he wanted it to be in everyday life. He wanted to confront people with his art and, and get a reaction from them that way. Uh, and, and as I said, he saw himself as a one-man apocalypse, and he saw his films as a way to do that, as a way to challenge people and, and their perceptions and stuff. And I feel like it, part of that is why this movie fails so hard, but we'll get to that in a minute. But, uh, it's just a sad, hunchbacked... It looks like somebody took a taxidermied sheep, chainsawed it in half, and then somebody's walking around with it, covering their upper body while wearing really baggy, woolen pants. It's got one arm that sticks straight out like the world's goofiest Dalek, and one arm that just droops and almost drags the ground. And you can tell whoever's wearing the costume, Frederick Hobbs built the the monster. It actually says that in the opening credits. He's the one who built the monster. But you can actually, the way it walks, you can tell this thing is way too heavy. It's not balanced right. The whole, every time it moves on screen, it gives off the idea of somebody desperately trying not to face plant. And the way it wobbles you can tell they can't see that they're just sort of you know being you know yelled at off camera you know left right what it's just so so bad so so and there's and he built it but there's no animatronics or anything in it so it, it constantly wears this vacant open-mouthed expression regardless of the noise it makes or anything but it escapes and Mariposa tracks it down with the best line in the film, ever as they have a little Beauty and the Beast moment, and she, you know, is is trying to get it to come back to the lab, and oh, I know you don't want to hurt anybody, and oh, it's not your fault, and da da da. And I don't even know what she's referencing of this line, but she looks at goes, I know you don't want to hurt it. You know, when it turns around before attack, she goes, No, wait, I have followed you here all the way from the glory hole. I don't know if that's. I mean, if it is, it's a very unfortunate name for uh, <clears throat> for the uh, doctor's lab. And if not, I really—I mean, does somebody live in the area? Is there like a natural formation called the Glory Hole out there? Is there anything out there that can be talked about on a PG podcast that uh, is called the Glory Hole? anything seriously I don't yeah but uh you know the deputies I think it's the deputies if it's not it's just the same guys in different outfits you know the monster It (laughs) after this you know Eddie shows up scares it off but after this you just see and again it's a ridiculous scene all these kids at a picnic and, and a couple of mothers and this thing approaching in the background doing this horrible weaving oh god oh god I don't want to fall in this thing Uh, I'm not gonna call it a run just just sort of half speed walk towards them in the background and they're just completely oblivious and there's no way they did not know this thing was coming up on them the way people are staged and sitting and looking and then they run and uh, you know they don't show it killing anybody but apparently the later scene one of the women's are like oh it killed my kid okay I guess and uh, then it blows up the town's gas station By scaring the guy who is, uh, I think smoking while for some reason getting ready to pump gas. And, uh, I'm, I'm pretty certain, uh, 95% of the film's budget went to that gas station explosion. But, uh, and that's it. That's the whole rampage of the sheep is that, that one gas station, one kid and one deputy because the rest of the deputies change clothes, uh, because I was wearing all black before, but they just ride a rodeo circle around this thing because it sits in a ditch and rope it and put it in a cage. And uh, Barnstable's recaptured, but the sheriff, but the, uh, the, sorry, not the sheriff. The uh, mayor is like, oh yeah, while you were locked up, I made my own deal with uh, your boss, Mr. White. And uh, he says, so yeah, Virginia City's going to be, be uh you know be great again we're going to be like we were 100 years ago they're reopening the minds and this this big speech and the character again it seems like he has no thought of his own everything is my grandfather used to say or when my grandfather run this town or grandfather grand and that's it you know that nothing really seems to be his it's like he's he's just been brainwashed by his family but he gets the whole town together, all, I think, 50 of them. I mean, that's what it looks like. Next to the, uh, I want to say it's a landfill. I mean, it's just this hill. I don't know what it is. They don't really say what it is. Uh, and, and the monster's there in a cage in the back of a pickup truck, and he's talking about, oh, this is going to be our new tourist thing, and the mines are getting ready to open back up, and... The trains are going to run through again on rails of solid gold and it's just this big bombastic you know pie in the sky. everything's going to be perfect now because of what I've done speech and the people turn on him for some reason. Well I mean you know, Eddie and Dr. Clemens and Mariposa all speak out against him for keeping the animal caged up and the monster c- the, the uh, I guess the God monster uh, caged up and for wanting to exploit it, and the doctor wants to, you know, use it for research, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. and they, they turn on it, and they just shove the truck, and the cage, and the monster all just down this hill, and, you know, Mariposa, and Eddie, and Barnstable just take off running down the hill, and, I mean, and that's the way the movie ends. It's one of those... And, and you've seen this a lot in movies from the 70s. It's almost like a non ending. It's just like they you know, ran out of film or something because for some reason everybody in town starts rioting and turning against the mayor and they start shoving cars uh, down this hill and they start throwing trash down the hill and they set the trash on fire. And then they all, the whole town just starts running down the hill. And like the final shot is the mayor. You know, it's like a distance shot. And it's, I guess it's supposed to be Barnstable's point of view because you see him right before this this shot. But the mayor just like, you know, shaking his hands to the, the heavens and screaming, I won, Barnstable! I won! I won! And, okay? I don't... Uh... And it ends. And that's it. That, that, this this is the movie. This is the movie. Okay, I'm not even worrying about spoilers. Okay, I'm, I'm just... That's why I told you the whole thing is just... It's such... A disjointed, weird. I haven't seen any of the other films by Frederick Cobb's. Well, no, I won't say that. Uh, I have seen the musical number from *Roseland* called uh, you... uh, "What Is It?" You can't beat, you can't, you can't fart around with love. Uh, and E. Kerrigan Prescott sings that. It's available on YouTube. I, I just, I, I, don't know what else to say. <laughs> uh, so I don't know how this stacks up to his other films, but it's just uh, here's here's my thing. Frederick Hobbs, like I said, was a classical artist. He uh, he pioneered Art Echo, which was a combination of environmental technology, fine art, solar or nomadic architecture, and interactive communications, all in support of an eco-friendly lifestyle. And you know this is late '60s, early '70s when he's doing this. And he trained. Uh, uh, he trained in, in Madrid. He's a well-respected classical artist, but this film—it—it it should have been a simple monster terrorizing the town story with a goofy monster. Um, you know, like I said, Night of the Lepus. That's a good example. Attack of the Killer Tomatoes. I mean, you can't get much more ridiculous than that. But it's more successful as a film, both of those, than this is. As I pointed out, the monster doesn't even do anything until 67 minutes into a 89-minute movie. And it kills two people in a three-minute rampage. And that's it. It, it. I don't know if he had the idea for this whole story about uh you know barnstable and and trying to revive the town and this political angle and then just for some reason decided to put in a monster because he decided to sculpt a monster or what but to me it just it doesn't work as a story it doesn't work as a film it just it doesn't work and i think I'm, i'm just gonna lay in my opinion, the, the whole bit of it, after researching more on Frederick Hobbs, because I got to find more on him than I could on the film, on any of his films, I think Frederick Hobbs is the reason why. I think, you know, class, classical artists becoming filmmakers isn't something that he, he was not the pioneer of, and you the uh, most famous example of this is Andy Warhol, who did tons of films. He did, a, was it Frankenstein? He did a Frankenstein movie, if I'm remembering right, that was 24 hours long. So, you know, it's not new, but as I said, from what people were saying, he didn't believe in editing. He didn't believe in rewrites. He didn't believe in reshoots. And he didn't believe in anything but his vision. And I think that's why the film fails. I think that's why, not just him, but you look at other other, uh, films, where you had one person who drove the entire look and feel and everything about the film birdemic the room uh the neil breen films i film is a collaborative thing yeah there's a writer there's a director but you know these these guys tried to do everything themselves and tried to fit their vision and that doesn't work in film you know i'm I'm reminded of uh bruce campbell talking about and uh his memoir, If Chins Could Kill. If you haven't read that, find that and read that. A great book. My uh, wife, who was then my girlfriend, got it for me for a birthday present one year. But uh, he answers the question he says, Do you know you're making a bad film? And when you're making them, and he's, his answer was yes. You make, you know, at some point on the film, everybody realizes what kind of film you're making and whether it's going to be a great film or whether it's going to be a bad film. And once you realize that, and I'm paraphrasing here, I mean, I'm, I'm not going to get the quote exactly, but but basically his his point is that once you realize that you're faced with a choice, you either just embrace it and realize, hey, we're going to make what most what people think is a bad film, but we're going to make an entertaining film, and you lean into that of hey, we're going to do the best we can, and we're going to if nothing else people will be entertained by it even if they are not entertained in the way we originally intended it we're going to make an entertaining film or you fight that and you try to save the film and you try to make it the way it was originally envisioned and that's never the way to go you know th- this is coming from him he 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 says that he, he says at the very end of the and I, I agree with it at the very end of the day regardless of what your initial vision is. If you make a movie, if you write a book, if you do anything creative, it has to be entertaining. And God, Monster of Indian Flats, a.k.a. The Secret of Silverdale, Frederick Hobbs' fourth and final feature, fails on that basic premise because he tried to make it something other than entertaining he tried to to keep his original vision and I think that's the biggest failure of the movie and I think it taints everything else and I think that's why I don't enjoy it and oh, guess what? I just found in my notes there was a tagline uh, apparently for the DVD Wanted, have you seen this sheep? Can't even get a good tagline for this film another failure but I'm going to quit talking about this movie, and I'm going to go watch something else that I do enjoy. Uh, the next movie on our list, and it is probably as badly shot and as low-budget as this one, but it is infinitely more enjoyable. Our uh, next film is going to be a uh, one from 1980. Hey, we're leaving the 70s. I know y'all are excited about that. Uh, 1980, it's a Philippine action movie. A parody of the uh, James Bond films. It stars a uh, stars an actor named Wing Wing, who is, uh, if I'm I'm telling you correctly, is uh, three foot six, and the title of it is for your height only, and it is very entertaining for all the wrong reasons. It, it is genuinely one of my favorite movies to watch, and this is going to be. Uh, probably my fourth or fifth time watching it just to get notes and and to refresh myself on it but uh yeah that's gonna be our next film i hope you show up for it uh if you like what you heard today tell a friend if you didn't tell an enemy uh if you really did like it though go to anchor.com or go to uh spotify.com or uh wherever you picked this up at and please leave us a review uh if you want to if you you have a movie you want me to watch if you have one you want me to talk about if I've made a mistake if uh, there's something you wanted me to uh, bring up again uh, contact me you can get me through uh, Twitter at at Sea Fever Dreams you can get me on Instagram for uh, uh, get me on Instagram at excuse me you can get me on Instagram at Celluloid Fever Dreams you can find me on Facebook at Celluloid Fever Dreams We have an email. Uh, You can go to Anchor also, and you can leave comments and and reviews. Uh, You can also, if you want to, because I I really do need to upgrade some of this equipment already, Uh, we we do accept donations if you want to uh, throw a little money our way on uh, Anchor. And uh, we also have an email. It is Celluloid Fever Dreams, but apparently somebody had already taken the proper way to pronounce that when I tried to to get it, so it's S-E-L-L-Y-O-U-L-O-I-D fever dreams at gmail.com but uh, I hope you've enjoyed it I'd like to thank you for letting me, me, be, yeah, letting me be part of your day uh, thank you for letting me ramble on about movies uh, hope this one hope you found this one to be a, a little better uh, episode than the one before it only got anywhere to go but up from here and uh, hope to see you again next week As always, I'm your host, I'm Wyndham Jennings, and uh, hey, (sighs) let's go watch some bad movies together. See ya.